for coming. And this event is also co-sponsored by NACLA, who just relaunched. Look on their site, you should pick up their, their issues. They really do this work very well. I'm here with my friend Renee Rojas. Uh, our new issue, which we're here to kind of celebrate the launch of, centers on, on Latin America, um, and it centers particularly on the pink tide. And we called it By Taking Power, uh, partially because we thought that what happened in Latin America was kind of in the last um, 10, 20 years, or 10, 15 years, was kind of a counter to the idea that we change things by thinking, you know, just small and locally, and by sidestepping questions of power. Um, and the pink tide experiments, of course, um, have had a mixed record. But on the whole, there's massive reductions in inequality, massive reductions in, in poverty, uh, increases in access of health and literacy. I mean, these are real um, gains. And in terms of um, the shifts that we've seen, uh, it's comparable only to maybe uh, the immediate construction of the welfare states um, in Europe in the post-war periods. Um, so I, th I think there's a lot to kind of learn, and I hope the issue is kind of a tentative attempt to uh, get some lessons about why the pink tide, I shouldn't say fell short, but why it encountered certain uh, kind of structural constraints that it limited what it was able to, to accomplish. So I think it's a good issue. Um, it's, it's really beautifully designed. Uh, Paulina, Ramike, um, you know, our, our designers and others did an incredible job on it. So I hope you pick up a, a copy. But Renee, I got questions for you. Yes. So I, I guess, first of all, when we think about Latin America, um, and we, we think often about underdevelopment, about poverty, about this part of the world kind of falling behind um, a lot of the rest of the world, and there's that old quote, I think it was by Diaz? It was by a Mexican leader, I think Diaz, which is like, um, poor Latin America, you know, so, so far from God, so close to the United States, um, or poor Mexico, maybe, uh, the quote. Yeah, Mexico. But, so, I mean, I guess in a broad sense, what's at the root of Latin American underdevelopment? How much weight do we put on imperialism? How much is there, is there other factors um, involved? I think often on the left, we try to draw a one-to-one -one between um, kind of this poverty and the periphery close to the, the kind of imperial core of, of capitalism. Yeah, I think in general, um, there is a kind of um, common view of Latin American underdevelopment um, that tends to view its relationship to the U.S. and to core countries, to central countries, as the reason uh, behind Latin American underdevelopment or lack of development, the idea being that um, the relationship to central countries and to, to powerful countries um, has integrated Latin American countries into you know, trade networks, commercial networks through, uh, throughout, and it sucked resources out of these countries and sucked them dry, as it were. Um, and this is the classical view of the un underdevelopment school and Andre Gunder Frank, for instance, or the dependency school. Um, I, I actually think that, that it's incorrect. Um, if it were it to be correct, you would think that the countries that were least integrated into the world economy would be the most underdeveloped or the, the least developed, and that's clearly not the case. Um, so I think rather than looking at the relationship that uh, Latin American countries had to the center, to powerful countries as, you know, um, 
and to find there the, the cause of underdevelopment, uh, it's more important to look domestically and to see what was happening inside of these countries and see what the political relationships were, the, the you know, growth models, the, the, the property kind of relations, if you want to use that language, were inside of these countries. Um, because, there, you know, there's another quote that says that, um, you know, Latin American development is owed not to the fact that it was, quote-unquote, exploited by central countries, but that it wasn't exploited enough. Um, and so what, you know, what that, what people are saying when, when, when they allude to that is that, in fact, Latin America, because of its built-in backwardness, the backwardness of its own economies, right, wasn't able to integrate itself enough into the global division of labor, whatever. Um, but that, the, the, again, the key factor is not integration into global economy, these, commercial, these uneven or unequal commercial relations, but what was happening dom domestically and the power that domestic elites essentially had to um, place barriers right, on, on more equitable and advanced forms of development. So, so given that, um, how do we understand a development like uh, ISI? Um, in these developments in Latin America. Is it, is it as simple as to say that there was one model of elite development, uh, then this was a new model of elite development that represented maybe the interest in the industrial bourgeoisie as opposed to agrarian sectors um, of the economy? Or, and then are we completely to take the kind of like, at least let's say in a place like Argentina, the, um, the popular aspects um, that, that came with ISI uh, for granted as, oh, this was just kind of like the, the rhetoric, rhetorical dressing of this new capitalist growth strategy? Or is that too cynical of a view? No, I, I think, it, you know, ISI was a capitalist growth, growth strategy, and it was a growth strategy that was um, promulgated, that was driven by the interest of, of domestic elites, of, of, of business elites in, in Latin American countries. I mean, Argentina's, I think, a fairly exceptional case because of the role that the working class ended up playing in the ISI regime, um, and we can go into that, that later. Um, but I, I think that ISI wasn't something that was, let's say, pushed from below and or, and or forced upon elites by a kind of autonomous state, right, that came in and only disciplined a business and forced them to do this. Um, I think two things had to be in place. One, there had to be a, a collapse, right, of the given of the existing growth models that did depend on old land-owning um, elites. On the one hand, but you also had to have the emergence of new sections of capital, um, new business sectors, right, that could demand these policies, that can ask for protectionism by the state, that can ask for subsidized credit, etc. And, and essentially, right, convince um, the state to, to embark on, on this path. Um, so no, I, I think it was definitely an elite-driven strategy, and it was a capitalist strategy, um, no doubt. But so, so I guess often, though, the, the latest wave of, of kind of political turmoil in Latin America, the, the pink tide is often lumped in in this kind of way with um, people like Morales and Chavez just called populist kind of, which has always been like a very vague and slippery term, but I think especially in the Latin American context, it almost always is pejorative when it's used in this academic um, literature. And I think there's also a school of writing um, 
on the left that would essentially say, listen, there was all this turmoil, there was all this protest in places like Bolivia and elsewhere, and um, the result of this protest was going to be open-ended. But what these new kind of governments um, did was essentially preserve certain portions of neoliberalism that would otherwise be uh, be, be challenged. Um, is, is that, I mean, do, do, and so in other words, between that analysis that I think, it's not this quite this black and white, but that foregrounds what was preserved in neoliberalism, and an analysis that would say there was an attempt at a break with neoliberalism that was maybe incomplete, um, or in the case of Venezuela, there was an attempt that, you know, Chavez might have even, I'd, said he wanted you know, a break with capitalism that was incomplete, uh, like which analysis, where should yeah. we put our, our weight or emphasis? Well, I think there are kind of two extremes um, in, in, in this question, right? And you've kind of gone over them. On the one hand, right, and this often comes from the left, mostly comes from the left, if not exclusively, right? Um, uh, we tend to view the emergence of the pink tide as nothing more than kind of neoliberal continuity that's disguised. Right, and it's disguised by this populist veneer, or it's covered by this uh, with this populist veneer. So that's that's one side. Um, the other side, right, goes all the way to the other extreme and claims that no, this is actually a new form of development, which is why they call it neo-developmentalism, right? And and you know, 21st century socialism. Um, that you know they've also used that term. Um, I think both sides are are incorrect. Um, I think. Neither was, I mean, the pink tide doesn't represent just mere continuity with what happened during the 80s and the 90s, right? Nor does it amount to a new form of development, some kind of neo-developmentalism where the state plays this very active role in promoting, right, a new kind of diversified industrial development, and if it needs to, it disciplines um, business sectors in order to do so. Um, I think that's incorrect. The reason, however, I think we can distinguish between the pink tide and what came before, right, and kind of orthodox pro-market development, um, the kind of typical pro-market neoliberalism of the 80s and 90s, is that politically it was a very different dynamic, right? If neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s, I guess maybe even a little earlier if you include Chile, right, really was predicated on um, the weakening of labor and the undermining of any leverage that popular classes had, these new pink tide regimes did the opposite. They actually um, rode, right, a crest of popular rebellion, and they actually empowered popular sectors, I think, right? And they weren't merely committed to business or certain, like, globalized sections of business and finance, right, as, you, as many people think um, was what was going on in the 80s and 90s. So that's, in that sense, I think it's quite different. Um, it's, it's not, again, merely a continuity of, of what came before. But to go to the other extreme and claim that this is a new form, a neo-developmentalism, right, where the state plays this active role and pretty much transforms the economic infrastructure of the country, it's just wrong. And all you have to do is look at kind of sectoral data to see that, in fact, it's wrong. The very sectors that emerged in the 80s and 90s, economically speaking, right, and the branches that were kind of the, the, the leading edge of neoliberal growth, to the extent that it happened, are the same ones that are leading uh, or that led, right, um, the growth during the 2000s and the early uh, teens. So I, I grew up in a, uh, 
you know, immigrant immigrant family. I was always called the American because my my family. You look American. Yeah, exactly. My family came, you know, six months before I was born. So by virtue of you know being 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 born here, I was I was the the token U.S. imperialist in the the, the household. <laughs> but um, but you know, everything would revolve around kind of the the U.S. because the U.S. didn't allow nice things to happen. You know, why is a special period happening in Cuba? You know, my mom would say, oh, the, you know, the U.S. is after them. Like, oh, they hate Gaddafi, but Gaddafi built, you know, schools for girls. You know, it's kind of a tangent. I don't get my mom fired from her job, but, you know, it, it's a sentiment, right? And I, and I understand it. I think among, among you know, common political sentiments in the, the U.S., it's, it's one of the more honorable ones, right? Kind of a, uh, a knee-jerk skepticism of the, you know, empire you, you live within. You know, I think it's one of the, the better things the U.S. left, um, you know, has, has going for it. But so I guess the question is, why did the U.S. allow a nice thing to happen in, in you know, Latin America? Like, why wasn't the pink tide immediately uh, snuffed out? You know, could we imagine something like that happening in the Cold War context? Were we always maybe putting too much weight on, like, the kind of... Um, the Superman-like ability of the U.S. to to influence just about everything in the world? Yeah, Yeah, I think definitely. I think that even in the Cold War era, right, even in in that, within that kind of geostrategic framework, um, and, I mean, we do this more than anyone. Latin American, it's it's just built into us, right? It's It's a national practice we have. We overstate the role of U.S. intervention in determining the outcome, political and economic outcome, I think, of, of the region. Um, and I mean, I, I mean this even for the most extreme cases, uh, the country I'm from in Chile, um, for instance. I think that it's an exaggeration to say that American intervention led to the coup uh, that toppled Allende and that ushered in the Pinochet regime. Um, my view is that, here's my own tangent, my view is that, that um, the coup would have happened independent of U.S. Um, uh, interventions. Not, not only was it kind of um, insufficient, it, was, it wasn't even necessary for, for it to occur. Um, and, I th- and I think we should, we should have the same view both for what happened in the um, pre-neoliberal era during ISI, um, during the developmentalist stage, and also what happened in the post-neoliberal era, so um, during, during the pink tide. In the pre-neoliberal era, during developmentalism, the U.S. wasn't necessarily and, you know, um, automatically opposed to these ISI regimes and to this, these, these campaigns for economic modernization and social transformation of these countries. And there's a way in which the U.S. supported it. The key was, was not whether or not these countries were trying to do something um, and kind of build up their own economies. The key was whether or not these development projects fit within the broader plan that the U.S. had for the region, right? Remember, coming out of the end of the Second World War, the U.S. was basically reorganizing the world economy with itself at the head, right? And as long, even nationalist developmentalist regimes in Latin America, if they fit within that scheme, right, within the kind of commercial and um, uh, supply chain designs, if you will, that the U.S. had for the region, it allowed it to happen. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of, 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 of cases that, that uh, bear this out. Um, it was only when these regimes challenged, right, the role that the U.S. had for 
economic modernization within this grander scheme that the U.S. Um, got involved and pressured in different ways. And this happened when there were socialist governments in power, as in Chile, um, or, and you know when there were kind of nationalist military governments in power. The U.S. was staunchly opposed, for instance, to what the military regime was trying to do in, in Peru in, in the late 60s and, and early 70s, right? Um, but even then, though, I, I think we need to emphasize, we need to stress that um, even when the U.S. was opposed to, to these developments, it couldn't just come in right, and topple governments at, at will. It had to actually confront the forces on the ground, the different balance of, of class forces in these different countries, and it couldn't always accomplish what it wanted to accomplish. And I think we should view the same thing. We should, we should adopt the same approach to what's happened, again, since, um, the two, since 2000, approximately, with, with the pink tide. Um, I think, you know, the first thing that the U.S. state tried to do was to see, well, how, how can we actually live with these new regimes? How can we accommodate them? And they tried. Um, so the first, you know, Venezuela is, I think, a great case, right? The first um, few years, it was trying to come up with some accommodation with, with Chavez because it wasn't clear where Chavez was going, right? Um, if you look at Argentina, something's very similar. In fact, the Bush, this is an interesting fact, the, the Bush government um, not only was okay with Argentina defaulting in the beginning of 2002, it actually encouraged, um, well, there's some, some people who think this, right, that it, it actually encouraged Argentina to do so because they knew that it was a step that this new state had to take in order to survive. And you know, they were trying to, again, see how we could bring these countries back in to the fold rather than immediately intervening in a hostile uh, manner. Yeah, there was a, uh, a State Department memo um, about Chavez right after he was elected, uh, basically urging calm among the U.S. establishment. Yeah. They said, uh, watch what Chavez does, not what he says. Um, and of course, it was kind of like the opposite. Chavez increasingly went in this, especially after the, the coup attempt in 2002, went on this radicalized kind of way, even though within his first three, four years, he still claimed that he was you know, a third-way social democrat and, 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 you know, and whatnot. Yeah, and I, I think, again, the U.S. was preoccupied with other regions of the world at the same time. Um, so that didn't mean that it ignored what was happening in Latin America, but it, it did, I, I think it, what it meant was that it did have a more tolerant approach, as it were. It tried um, to accommodate the pink tide as much as possible. Um, and, I mean, in one sense, there's really not too much of a reason not to do so. Again, one of the things uh, I mentioned was that the economies of these countries haven't, hasn't, haven't sorry, changed, right? So they still fit into um, American-led designs for the region in, in, in one respect. I'll give you another, another interesting fact. During the Kirchner years in Argentina, right, so 2003, 2015, this is after Argentina defaulted. It, it apparently, you know, had this big fight with the holdouts who wanted to charge 100% of the, of the debt, et cetera. The Kirchners paid $300 billion back uh, to, to banks um, worldwide. $300 billion, right? And I think it's, it's a small indication. It's just a fact. But it's an indication that the U.S. Can work, could work with these regimes. And what it took for the pink tide to decline and for different individual governments to fall was what was happening domestically, what was happening internally. And I think that's what determines, um, you know, the fall of, of, of the PT government in Brazil, the loss of elections in Argentina, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I guess 
often when we when we say there is these limitations, when we're say, we say that the pink tie government did certain things wrong, this often um, kind of turns to their economic strategies and people pointing out that the pink time governments were thriving when there were primary commodity, um, you know, the, the commodities they specialized in were booming in the world market, and they kind of went into to crisis or at least stagnation when those prices fell. And this kind of kind of boils down to the argument that they were too. De they should have fought this dependency through diversifying their economy and whatnot. Was, was there anything that a government like Venezuela could have realistically done in five, six years, especially facing a hostile opposition, mm -hmm. um, given all the other political constraints? Or is this just like a a criticism that that tangibly couldn't couldn't have been changed in, in that shorter period? Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say, I think, is you know the the argument that. Um, these, you know, the pink tide regimes accomplished what they did because they, you know, they rode this commodity boom, and as soon as the, the, the boom collapsed, it was over. I mean, that's just like a snapshot answer. Yeah, yeah, that's true in one sense, right? But the question, and this is what you're asking, is why? Why did these regimes remain so wedded, right, to this development model um, that, that depended so heavily on extractive industries and on, on, on um, foreign earnings from, from commodity sales? Um, and and how, was there any latitude, in fact, to to change the structure of the economy, to diversify the economy? I think there was, but it was it was minimal. And the main reason I think is political, right? It didn't have to do. I mean, it had the resources in one respect. It had just you know there was this inflow of dollars uh, during certain years that. The, these countries had an experience for over a decade, right? And that's why you have these growth rates, which are through the roof. I mean, Argentina from 2003 to 2010, I think, it averages like 8% growth per year. It's something ridiculous, right? The problem is, what could these governments do with this windfall, right? And here's where the political, I think, logic really kicks in and places fairly hard, hard um, constraints on, on, on their ability to maneuver. These governments really owe their existence, right, to um, mobilize popular sectors, right, to the sectors that had um, been behind the rebellions that toppled the old government. And it wasn't just government. It toppled the old party regimes in most of these cases, right, and built up new parties, Right? And new kind of ruling institutions. Right? So these governments owed their very existence to these, um, these popular sectors that, that, again, mobilized from below and allowed this to happen. Well, if you owe your existence to these sectors, right, you, have to, you, know, you have to give back in a sense. There's an exchange going on here. Right? And in a, in a way, they, they were under pressure to immediately pump these resources back into these new kind of um, clientelistic welfare um, programs, right? That compared to what happened during the 90s were quite generous. Compared to more universalist programs, right, during the developmentalist period, um, you know, they were pretty modest. But compared to how, you know, social provision had basically collapsed during the 90s, it really meant something, right? And why did these governments, why were they so committed to doing so? Because they came under attack almost immediately, right? Not all, but Venezuela is a good, a good case um, um, to study. I mean, as soon as the potential for more radical transformation um, kind of 
rears its head, and this happened with these uh, enabling laws of the, of the late 90s, I believe, or maybe early 2000s, right, where land reform, nationalizations, a number of other possibilities came up, right? Um, old elites fought back, and they fought back quite hard, right? And so to, sur to survive, right, and it's not because they're committed to the interest of the old elites. On the contrary, they're committed to these new constituencies, right? But in order to survive, they, had, they, don't, they quickly have to funnel these, this windfall back into their constituencies, right? And so I think that placed very hard limits, um, added on to the limits that already exist under normal circumstances, right? Um, so, but yeah, I mean, so overall, I think the answer would be there was some, there was more that could have been done, right? And they didn't have a chance to test it. Perhaps more could have been done, but I'm not sure how it, it was very significant. Well, I mean, I guess development requires kind of carrots and sticks. And when there's a boom, it's easy to give out the carrots, but it's harder to right. pay the political cost of right. like actually disciplining capital or even telling your your base or segments of it that they need to wait. Over the course of 20 years, they'll feel the rewards and not, yeah, you know, right. and immediately when they're living in poverty, there's kind of immediate things that need to be done, you know, the, which yeah. is a challenge. But I think, can I, can I yeah. answer that? Um, there was a sense, Venezuela is a good case for this, right? They did go after economic elites. I mean, the oil lockout of uh, 2003, 2003, yeah. 2003, I think it lasted in 2000, I'm not sure, right? Um, it happened through. PDVSA, the National Petroleum Industry, but there are private interests involved there, right? And the state goes after them and basically just tears them out of the national industry and says, fuck, screw you, right? It's over. Yeah, we're PG-13. Jodete. <laughs> um, but, yeah, then they have to turn around and answer to their constituencies. And they're saying, look, we're the ones that allowed you <laughs> to defeat the lockout. You know, you're not going to throw us under the bus now. And I think these um, sectors were given real political power. If some ISI regimes, the more corporatist labor-based ones, gave the working class real power, Argentina is the best example, the Pinta, especially Venezuela, gave um, you know, these sections of the working class real power as well. Right? And you, so you could not ignore their demands. So one, a couple of last questions, but one of them is, when we often talk about um, clientelism and kind of new forms of patronage that were developed um, both during kind of this period of, of more radical anti-neoliberal governments and, and also obviously during the, the classic period of, of um, kind of populism in, in Latin America, like we, we often kind of lump in all these institutions. Um, mm -hmm. that, but in Venezuela, it seemed like there was something different yeah. and more interesting going on through the network of of cooperatives that were that were attempted through at first the Bolivarian circles and other other um, initiatives, do you see this as being qualitatively different and and a, a part of a real attempt to? I mean, Chavez was even saying things like, you know, I'm just a leader. You shouldn't necessarily always listen to me. You should, you know, build your own kind of power, and that's what socialism is about. You know, uh, my my favorite Chavez moment was when he called for the creation of the fifth. You know, international. Like I know a lot of Trotskyists that don't acknowledge, you know, the fourth international as a real thing. But you know, clearly his his left history was deep enough that he he counted it. You know? No, I think we should make these distinctions. They're 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 valid and, and they're necessary in our analysis. Um, and yeah, Venezuela is a case that that 
stands apart in, in many respects. And I, I think the main reason is that, um, in a sense, Chavez owed his survival even more than in other cases, right, much more, to the mobilization of popular sectors, right? So the defeat of the 2002 coup, you know, was exclusively uh, the result of, um, you know, the informal working class descending from the shantytown hills, right, and basically putting pressure on different military units to bring him back, right? And, and, and they didn't back down in spite of just terrible loss of life at, at the time, right? This kind of um, these, these confrontations that were instigated by, by elites and by the old right. Um, so Chavez really owed his um, permanence and power to, to this, this factor. And um, I think you can look at the, how this works differently in Venezuela by looking, let's say, at social provision, right? It's the only one of the pink-tied countries where more universalistic programs are put in place, the misiones, right? Um, healthcare, education for all, um, a number of other things, right? But they are, they're not the typical kind of social democratic, you know, welfare state universalist policies. But they were, they were for everyone. They weren't means tested. They weren't targeted. Um, let's say in in their in their um, in their design, right? So that that's one thing that that shows how Venezuela, uh, in Venezuela this stands apart. Uh, how Venezuela stands apart from other pink tide cases. The other thing is um, political participation, right? If you compare to Argentina, the, the same sectors, if you will, that mobilized in Argentina, right? They were incorporated into um, this kind of these neo-Peronist structures, which were founded on state patronage, right? Um, I think in Venezuela, the communal councils actually were quite different. Um, these were, you know structures and institutions for local decision making, right, um, that had more independence and where the working class could um, promote and pursue initiatives from below, right? Um, of course, they weren't totally independent, and I think the, eventually the, the, the formation of the PESUV, of the, the Unified Socialist Party, did a lot to undermine the, you know, the, the independence that the communal councils had. Um, but yeah, I think it's another indication of how um, this worked quite differently in Venezuela, and in that sense, Venezuela is somewhat of an outlier. So, so two final questions. One, the broader one: What's happening right now with the, the pink tide in, in Brazil and, and elsewhere facing new challenges? Should we simply understand it cyclically that you know after a long period of incumbency, it's natural that now the left will return to to opposition uh, just due to the the pressures and difficulties that, that come from, you know, administrating a, a capital state and the trade-offs and, and whatnot, yielding, some, you know, some sort of dissent over time and, and that necessarily not being, uh, uh, you know, a completely unexpected thing or is it or is something more significant, mm -hmm. you know, happening? Yeah, I, again, I think, I think both things are kind of going on. I mean, there's a way in which the pink tide is over um, in one sense, right? Um, I, th I think... Uh, the Bolivarian government is going to fall um, in, in Venezuela. Um, the PT, you know, obviously lost power in Brazil. Uh, the Kirchner's uh, lost power in, in, in Argentina. Um, I think Bolivia and Ecuador are a little trickier. I don't know the Ecuadorian case too well. Um, but they're a little trickier. But as a phenomenon in that formal sense, 
I think it's over. There's a way in which, however, what the pink tide created and produced is going to have an enduring effect, right? Um, even with the new right-wing governments in power, they're not going to be able to undo, right, what the pink tide regimes put in place, I think. Um, these new, more, relatively more generous welfare programs, for instance, uh, in Argentina collective bargaining, centralized collective bargaining, which is a big part of the story there, um, is distribution of, of natural rents. Um, they can't just do away with it, the new right, right? So in that sense, I don't think it's merely cyclical. I think that um, the pink tide came in and established some institutions, established some structures, right, which have staying power. And it's going to be very, very hard to do away with them until and if, unless, I should say, um, the new right actually formulates a new growth model, a new development model. And it doesn't have one because I just don't think there is one right now um, for these countries, right? Um, so it can't just come in and transform things and undo things without, I think, um, unleashing a period of popular instability, instability and rebellion that it's, gonna, it's not going to be able to deal with, and, and they'll immediately lose power. Um, so I think it's mixed. I think the pink tide formally, these governments have lost power, and they will, those that remain, I think. But what they put in place um, will have an enduring effect until, and again, uh, uh, and if the, this, these new right-wing governments are able to offer something different. And right now they can't.